Well, good morning. It's customary for you to say good morning back. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Hey, so uh, just again, I try to do this several times. Uh, every time I have the opportunity, just to point out, they're, they're in the seat there is a Connect card. If you're new in the room, if this is your first time or second time, um, I would love it if you would just give some pertinent information to us and drop that in the box on your way out the door. What that does for us is just lets us know that you were here. Uh, we want to follow up with you, uh, make sure that you um, put your bank account routing number on there uh, in addition to everything else so that we can... I haven't used that joke in a while, and usually it goes better than that, but maybe that's God's way of saying, put it it to bed. Uh, Before we get into the sermon, I wanted to give you an update. Last weekend, Jen was uh, telling you guys about Dave Johnson, who's a former ministry partner of ours back in our campus ministry days, and that he was in Africa this week, and we had prayed for him, and we were supporting his trip as a missionary to Africa, and what he's doing there is gathering African pastors. What we Finally, in Western culture, what we figured out is that when you equip people who are native to any particular area with the gospel and how to present the gospel, and you equip the pastors to make disciples, and then you turn them loose, they're far more effective than Western missionaries, and they cost a lot less money, right? Uh, because we, we have to have all our creature comforts when we go wherever we go and they just they're there and they're already in the culture and so they're gathering all these pastors from all over the continent to equip them to train disciples. And so I got an email. Dave has been leading an advanced seminar with 45 men. His brother uh, Richard has been teaching a basic seminar with a total of 180 African pastors involved in this conference this week. Many of them have never thought about discipleship as involving the whole person. So this is a huge uh, challenge for them, for these pastors to think about discipleship in a different way. And uh, Dave says, I think a lot of them will lead groups in their churches if we can just get our material translated into French because that's the for many of the countries there that is one of the the primary languages that they speak so I was really excited to get that I wanted to just share that news with you guys that here's another way that this tiny church we just are every week my mind is blown that God is using this tiny church plant to impact places all over the world places that I will never step foot in in that place I will never meet those people this side of heaven probably you won't either but your generosity, your faithfulness impacts for the kingdom. It's crazy how God multiplies what we give him. And so thank you for being a generous people. We're in our series this summer, the, the summer playlist. We're going through the book of Psalms. So we're going to be in Psalm 127 this week. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn over to Psalm 127. The great thing is that they're numbered. So if you have trouble finding Psalm 127, it's after 126. Really, no, go get some coffee, come back. (laughs) Um, Many decades ago in our culture, the seeds were sown for a cultural revolution in America. And I won't go into all uh, who the players were and are, what entities scripted the plan for the destruction of an entire nation But as we look around us today, we can say with those who herded us along to this place, here we are. Here we are. We have arrived. Uh, We have arrived at the destination. And in our culture today, it's confusing. 
like like things just chaotic. It's confusing, and it, and everywhere we we turn, this is where I just I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I, I've taught my children basic logic all of their lives since they were small, and so we actually kind of laugh about these things. But also, my heart, we're we're told to turn to then we're told that biology doesn't determine gender. So how can a person be sexist when sex is this fluid thing that's changing all the time, right? And, and we're told that women have been sorely oppressed for centuries, and to be sure that has happened, but then there's no fixed category called woman. Right? Do, you see the, do you see how that just, the, the, those things are completely at odds with one another, and yet we're, we're, we're encouraged to embrace both of those realities at the same time? That, that must mean that there's no such thing as misogyny either, because there's no category of woman. But here we are. Um, college campuses, which once were the places of prestige, where our smartest and brightest gathered for the sharing and competing of ideas are now places where the faculty and the students whip themselves into a frenzy if anyone dares to use the wrong pronoun. It's insane. We've reached the point of insanity. Men should never hit women or engage in violence towards them, but then men undergo sex reassignment and enter into the MMA and pummel women and are crowned champions. What, what has happened to our world? We, we've been told that family... And, and I think this is one of the cornerstones of this. The way that we used to define it is basically unimportant and obsolete. But now we're told that family, the new way of defining family, which is whatever you want it to be, is super important. And so here we are, right? Here we are. We've arrived. And when it comes to the most basic institutions that were created and ordained by our creator, God, we as a people, as a culture, have lost sight of what is right and good and even normal. How can we, and we, the people in this room, the, the, the fringe subculture of Christianity, regain a clear understanding of God's design and embrace it so that we're giving the watching world a living example of what God intended? How do we do that? How do, how do we embrace that? As we continue our series, Summer Playlist in the Psalms, we, we've come to an important place where God is very clear in expressing uh, his design for family. While this is not an exhaustive text, it's not going to give you everything about God's perspective on family. It is a crucial text and giving us some insight into God's heart. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at Psalm 127 together. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Jesus, would you give us wisdom to understand your word? There's some idioms and some word pictures there that are not common in our culture. And we want to unpack this. We want to understand it. And we want to get a, a vision for your heart, for family, and how you want to shape who we are as your people. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep 
Uh, he gives to his beloved sleep. So, so here's the summary of verses 1 and 2. is Life is vanity apart from a relationship with the living God. And now, if you, if, you want, if you want to really go further with that theme, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't do it in February in the Northwest when it's dark and you've come to the end of the seasonal affective disorder and you're already feeling depressed because Ecclesiastes will just make it worse. Because almost every other verse in Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, everything's vanity, meaningless, all of it's meaningless, right? Because Solomon keeps using this phrase, under the sun. He talks about the system under the sun, which is to say that um, in the earth, closed system, Right? God is not under the sun. God is apart from the system. He's over the system. But if your view of the world is a closed system apart from the living God, everything's meaningless. Everything's worthless, ultimately. And so vanity, everything's vanity. Building the house, this is the way God's word is presenting the idea of um, building up a home, a family, right? The importance of family. Marriage provides an excellent, and in, in some cases, the only way to break cycles of dysfunction and even abuse. I mean, two people are coming together. We do, Jen and I have done tons of premarital counseling in our almost 20 years of ministry together. And it's, it's, it's fun to see these two individuals come together and be like, we can't wait to get married. We're so excited to be married. And, and we've been married a while ago. That, yeah, that'll wear off. And then, and then when it does, you've got to like deal with the reality of this other person that um, you're going to wake up next to you one morning and smell their breath and go, I don't like you, right? And, and how do you help people on the front end of marriage have a realistic view of what it is that they're going into? And when a couple gets married and they're leaving their family of origin, Scripture says they're cleaving to their new spouse. They're creating a new family unit. And this is, the, this is an opportunity to bring the best of both family systems, right? And leave the worst behind and create this new, better thing. How many of us going into our marriages had that perspective on the front end before we ever got to the altar going, man, I want to I wanna leave behind the things that, you, you remember the things you said? Everybody said, I will never do that when I'm married. I will never act like my mom or my dad in that way. I'll never, right? This is your chance, right, to leave all that stuff behind, even though um, you're going to have moments where you go, oh, shoot, I'm doing that thing that I said I would never do, right? That happens to everybody. But you get to leave that and form this new thing. And so making that a reality is really hard ongoing work because it's so easy for us in our flesh to slip back into the old patterns of thinking and believing and behaving. But our marriages provide the opportunity to build a godly life and a godly posterity. But married couples don't begin their life together on a blank slate. The husband and the wife are bringing their presuppositions, their ideas, their traditions, their worldviews, their family systems, their conflict resolution skill sets, all into this new marriage. And that all that, that happens very naturally. It just happens. So if the couple doesn't deliberately decide to pattern their life after godliness in the image of Christ, they're just going to float along in the same patterns of behavior that they've always floated along in, right? And instead of bringing the best from both family systems, they end up manifesting the worst of both family systems when they're in the flesh. But when we're in the pursuit of Christ, he gives us the grace to bring about the best. So, so just to get a really, really practical for a moment, Right? When it comes to the home, when it comes to marriage roles, those roles between a husband and a wife are established and expounded on in uh, Genesis 2, 
in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Peter 3. I'm not going to take the time to read those passages today, but if you, if you want to do some more study, and I encourage you to do that, Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. Th- those roles for a husband and a wife are things that are defined by God, but have been modeled for us, for better or worse, by our own parents. They've been modeled for us by our own parents. So understand that the roles in a marriage do not give, and it's got to take time to say this, they don't give greater or lesser value to the person. Right? They're just roles. I go into my toolbox, and the guys who've been around men's ministry with me for a while, you've heard me use the analogy, and I grab my hammer. I use my hammer for some jobs. I use my... uh, cordless screwdriver for other jobs. And when I use my cordless screwdriver for my hammer jobs, I destroy the cordless screwdriver and the job doesn't get done well, right? The, 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 the tool's designed to accomplish a specific task, right? God's given different roles to the different people in the marriage, right? It doesn't mean that one is more valuable than the other. God's design is always with our best in mind and his glory as the outcome when we operate according to his design. So men are given the role of headship and authority. That is always a servant leadership. Always. Never lording it over. Not a unilateral dictatorship. And I say to guys all the time, and just probably two weeks ago, I had to catch myself. If you go around saying, I'm the head of this house, you're not. If you got to say it all the time, you're not. Because it's leading by example. It's leading from the heart. Wives are to submit to their husbands. That's not all men in all places at all times. I had I tried to teach this at one point to our young adult group many years ago at our other church, and the, the women freaked out. They were all like, does that have to submit to every guy everywhere? And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not even married yet. Just deep breath, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that, right? Uh, it means submit to your husbands. In fact, uh, Ephesians 5 says, as unto the Lord and respect them walking in peace and expecting God to work through the authority that he's established. Because the issue Peter's going to make in chapter 3, 1 Peter, is not really do you trust your husband, it's do you trust God. Because Peter says, yeah, no, I get it, that's terrifying. To have to trust a dude? Yeah, no, I get it, right? Because our track record, not so great. So, So do that which is frightening, women, that's what Peter would say. Do that thing which is frightening. Submission does not mean that you're inferior. It doesn't mean that you lose your identity. It doesn't mean that you become a non-person. It doesn't mean blind obedience or to allow yourself to be used or misused or abused in any way. Right? And then then this little snippet in Genesis 1, uh, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply families, fill the earth and subdue it. That's an edict or a directive that God has never rescinded. He's never canceled. He never said, you know what? That's over. Don't do that anymore. Be fruitful and multiply, right? So that's the home. Unless the Lord builds the home, those who labor to build it, labor in vain. God's got to be the one laying that foundation, undergirding everything that happens in the home. And then he says, unless the Lord uh, guards the city, keeps watch over the city, those who keep watch do so in vain. That's the idea of society, culture, right? I want to spend less time on that this morning because I firmly believe that if we, as followers of Jesus, if we grow up in Christ-likeness and we we strive for maturity, if we share the gospel and make disciples, and if we work for godly marriages and we raise godly families, then the culture is going to be impacted. 
right? I think, I think we get the car before the horse. It's like, I want to get out there. I want to I be a mover and a shaker and impact the culture. And, and then I'm going to let my family just decay. And it's like, that's the credibility piece you've got to have. You've got to have that, right? And so if we, if we grow, if we pursue Christ-like maturity, if we make disciples, and if we work for godly homes, we will impact the culture. We will impact. And these social institutions, they build on each other, right? So marriage between one man and one woman. That, that's what we believe as a church. One man, one woman, covenant union. Marriage is the foundation for family, which is the addition of children, whether by birth or by adoption. And we're all about adoption here because we've all been adopted into the family of God. Adoption's a great thing, right? Um, marriage, family, the church, and then government. This is the stewarding arm of a society. This, this is the, we protect the people from evil, Romans 13, right? So apart from God, this is what the psalmist is saying, apart from God, both of those institutions, whether it's the home or the culture, they're doomed to fail. If God's not involved actively in the building of those institutions, they're going to fail. Anything that you do, whether you're building your home or guarding the city or working in your job, listen, it's worthless, it's meaningless unless the Lord is in it. Twice he repeats the phrase, unless the Lord. And then three times Solomon hammers us with the word vain to make the point that there are only two possibilities. The Lord blesses or your efforts in vain. That's it. God is in it and he blesses it or it's in vain. You go back to um, 1770. There's a guy named Alexander Tyler who penned what has become a very famous, uh, basically as a summation of how a culture forms and then deteriorates. It's called the cycle of nations. He said that a people will go from bondage to spiritual faith. Like being suppressed and oppressed will cause people to move towards spiritual faith. And then from spiritual faith, they move into great courage. That emboldens them, right? Because they see beyond themselves that there's a greater reality beyond themselves. And then from courage, they move into the place of freedom. They fight for their freedom. They win their freedom. And then once they've reached the place of freedom, they move to the place of abundance. Because they said, I can work hard. I can, I can produce more than I need. And I can, I, can, I can produce wealth and abundance. And then that abundance will inevitably lead to complacency. And then from the place of complacency, we move to apathy. And from apathy to dependency. And from dependency back into bondage. Here's what's crazy about that cycle of nations, right? We can look back in history and we can see, we can track that time and time again in other nations and other empires that have risen in the world and fallen. And it usually takes between 500 and 1200 years for that to run its course. Sometimes more quickly, sometimes more slowly. The Roman Empire is a great example of a long run of this cycle, right? And um, we've managed to cycle almost completely through this in just about 240, what are we, 241 years old this month? Right? So super fast. We have cycled through Alexander Tyler's cycle of nations. We've moved through it. We're we're back in the place of apathy and dependency, and we're moving quickly towards bondage. 
And you go, what, what is it? That, what's the root cause of a thing like that? Uh, a French philosopher, about the time of the birth of our nation, his name was Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, he came over to see this experiment called America. They were very interested, the French, um, partly because they'd never won a war even against themselves. And they're like, how do you do that? Um, I'm always going to bag on the French every chance I get, right? So uh, they, they, they sent Alexis de Tocqueville over to just kind of figure out, like, what is it about this American experiment that is causing it to be so vibrant and work so well? And this was his observation. He said, America is great because America is good. This guy understood that the ethic... The Judeo-Christian ethic that permeated the foundation of what was America was the thing that allowed America to become great. We had a common sense of morality, a common sense of what is right and wrong. And then he went on to say this. He says, if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. If we ever lose our sense of right and wrong, our our moral compass, our nation will begin to crumble and fall apart. And that is exactly what we see that we have kept watch in vain. You look at current examples of family and culture crumbling before our eyes. Uh, I could go on for hours about fatherlessness in our culture. And that that's a systemic root issue in the lives of men and women. Uh, the issues of gender fluidity. We've reached the place where we really do but we believe the Genesis 2 and 3 lie. When Satan said, you can be like God, we as a culture have believed that. We think now that our words create reality. And just because I say a thing, it is so. That's crazy. That's craziness. Romans 1, Paul will make the case, and we won't read the text this morning, but if you start in verse 18 and you go all the way to the end of the chapter, Paul would say all of that, um, when a culture goes haywire and spirals down into the death spiral, all of that goes back to the failure to acknowledge God as our creator and the failure to give him thanks, to submit to his authority. Say, you're God and we're your creation. And when we lose that, we lose our way. And then the psalmist asks the question. He says, if the foundations crumble, what can the righteous do? What can we even do? I don't know if you've ever uh, looked at buying a home or you've been in a home and the foundation was bad. Like, there's not, you can paint the walls, it does not matter. You you could rip out the countertops and put new ones in, it does not matter. You could re roof it, it doesn't matter. The whole thing has to be torn down. The foundation has to be torn out and relayed because the whole house eventually is just going to crumble. It's going to fall in on itself. The foundation's eroding and crumbling. There's nothing you can do except let it fall. And so we pray for the soon return of Jesus. And then we plan for our grandchildren's future. I've said this before to the young adults at SALT. And I've said, listen, I'm not telling you guys these truths so that you can go and change the direction in the course of our nation because I think we're, I think we're pretty much done. I think um, if God relents and if, if, if we go on as a people here on this blue ball for a couple more generations, then what we need to be thinking is that how do we equip my grandkids to rebuild civilization in some other context? Because this one's just pretty much crumbling at this point. So why does Solomon make this point about all these things being vanity? Well, the the reason is because we all have this sinful propensity to see ourselves and our efforts as primary. 
Right? And then to relegate God to kind of the secondary role in whatever we do. We'd like to take all the major credit for our accomplishments and, and then give God a polite tip of the hat and rob him of his glory. Let me tell you where I see this in my life in church planting. Um, on, on a Sunday morning in this room before you get in here, most of you, and things are going well, I'm like, way to go me, way to go team. And then when things go haywire and sideways, I'm like, Lord, where are you? Right? Don't we do that? Don't we do that? Uh, God is primary in our thoughts when things go wrong. He's secondary or tertiary in our thoughts when things are going well, if he's there at all, right? And so this is the point that Solomon's making. We don't see our total need for God. We fail to render proper thanks to him for what he's done. And, and then he says this really crazy thing. He says, I give my beloved sleep or rest. I think this underscores for us the need for Sabbath, the importance of Sabbath. Resting is an act of faith. If we've chosen not to, in our own efforts, try to make family happen, make culture happen, build whatever it is we're trying to build with our own hands, and we, and we stop every seventh day and we say, you know, I'm just going to take a day and I'm just going to rest. And I'm not going to be in the rat race today. And I'm just going to be with my family today. And I'm going to pour into them and just enjoy what God has given me. That is an act of faith. More of us need to cultivate stillness. In times of solitude. Can I encourage you this week? Uh, and this is, I try to do this. I haven't done it lately. I used to take a day a month, one day every month, and I'd go away for the day. And I'd leave my phone in the car, and I would go hike out somewhere, or go to the beach, or go to the lake, and be alone with my Bible and a notebook. Because I just need to be still before God. So, so let me encourage you to do some really practical things, like unplug for, for a day. Unplug. If you're going to take a Sabbath, if you're going to enjoy family, put your phone on silent and stick it in a drawer somewhere and forget about it until later. At the very least, turn off notifications. Would you do that? Just turn it off. This is total interruption every 15 seconds. Oh, I got a new email from oh, a person in Kenya that wants money. Right? You don't, you don't need that distraction. You don't need that. Rest. The importance of rest. And then verse 3, he says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is family from God's perspective. And I want to just stop and I want to acknowledge that there are broken families in our church. There are blended families in our church. There are divorcees. There are widows. There are single parents who are doing their best to try to honor the Lord and to live lives that are in alignment with his will and his ways. And I, and I respect that and I love that. And, I, and God bless you if that's you and you are making every effort to walk in godliness and holiness in the situation that you find yourself in. But I've spoken to people in every possible scenario over 20 years of ministry. Every possible broken scenario. And I can tell you without fail that when I ask this question, The response rate has been 100% yes. Here's the question. Regardless of your current situation or how you got there, if you could have your spouse, if you have both parents back in the family, in a God-honoring, Jesus-loving marriage, engaging with your kids as a family the way God designed and intended it, would that be a better situation than the one that you have now? And the answer is always yes. It's always yes. If I could have that person back and they, they weren't a jerk anymore, they, they loved Jesus and they loved our kids and we were engaged in that together, that is a better situation. And all that acknowledges is that God's design is the best. What God wants is best. 
right? And so we make a way. We, we rely on grace. And we go to the cross and we thank the Lord for the grace to move forward in the situations that he's placed us in. But God's design for family, really clear here, really clear in Psalm 127. He says, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Uh, Danny Wiebe, how many of you guys know the Wiebes? They're a family in our community that are in, well, I can't say where they are. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it because this audio will be on the internet. Uh, they're in an African country that I cannot name that is heavily Muslim. And as soon as they got on the ground, there's a family with four sons, no daughters. They were immediately accepted as like a blessed people in the culture because of, because they had sons, right? That's seen as a real blessing. Instant celebrity with the very people he's trying to reach because they get off the plane and they have four sons. So it's like, wow. Um, now, obviously, that this, this idea, sons are a heritage from the Lord, can be taken too far. We look at China, right? All the boys in the last three decades and almost no girls. They are in a mess, right? But here's the deal. I, I need to be able as a pastor to talk about sons, uh, without having to bend over backwards to make sure girls are not offended. Um, and that's the culture we live in. Uh, praising hammers and, screw, and, and the screwdrivers start a petition against the bigoted carpenter. You know, it's that kind, of, that kind of world that we live in. Sons are the ones who carry on the family name. And so I'm just going to bag on feminism for a minute. Because uh, even feminists have the dishonor of bearing their father's last name. Um, so there's always a dude involved. Feminism is really essentially a Trinitarian heresy because within the Godhead, you have the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. They're all equal in value, equal in godness. And yet the son submits himself to the will of the father. He takes a subservient role and the spirit submits himself to the son. And so there is submission in a hierarchy, but there's co-equality. And there's no diminishing of value. And so, um, if I could just, as an aside, uh, in, in marriage, ladies, single ladies, if, if at some point you get married and, you, and you're tempted to think, man, I don't want to take on my husband's name. The reason we do that is because um, marriage, Ephesians 5, is a picture of Jesus in the church. And when we come to Christ, we are leaving our old identity behind and we're taking on a whole new identity. And so there's something significant about taking on the name of a husband because that completes the picture of what marriage is, right? It makes it whole. Uh, I'm, I'm taking on a new identity in this new life, and that's a picture of my relationship with Jesus and the church's relationship with Jesus as we take on a new identity. So um, honor the Lord in that. I would encourage you. And then children are God's blessing. Right? He makes a statement. Children are a blessing. And that is not the primary view in our culture. It's not how we see children in our culture. And, and so I've always said to the young adults that I've ministered to, if you want to win the culture war, outbreed them. Some of you are working on that really hard. Thank you for having lots of kids. Um, it, it really is true, right? In a culture that uh, sees convenience as the ultimate value, that we kill thousands of babies every day. If you want to win the culture war, outbreed them, right? Have families, have godly children, disciple your children. Um, I, I can go on stats right now about uh, the birth rate in Western culture. Did you know that in order for a culture just to, to sustain itself into the next generation, the birth rate is 1.2% minimum 
kids per family just to sustain culture. And our birth rate in the United States is 0.9%. All the, uh, the um, Latino immigrants bump it back up to one2 if it wasn't for them, we would, we would have fallen below the place. Where you, and once you hit 0.8, you cannot recover. The culture can't recover from that. The European birth rate right now is 0.8%. The Muslim birth rate in Europe is 8.1%. So Muammar Gaddafi, before he was killed a couple of years ago, he, he was on record as saying, we don't need a jihad in Europe. If you just give us 20 years, we'll have a caliphate. Because they're, they're having eight kids for every one adult, right? So I don't know that we'll catch up, but children are God's blessing. And, and, and then this, enjoying the blessing of godly children requires that we have a proper attitude towards children, right? So God says they're a gift, they're a reward. And then in verse 5, indirectly, he says they're a blessing, right? They're not burdens, they're not interruptions in our pursuit of self-centered goals. And we need to treasure our children like we would treasure a, treasure a precious gift from a wealthy friend because that's exactly what they are. The God who has everything gives a gift to family and says, I want you to steward this life. That's a precious reality, right? And then he says they're like arrows. Now, we could go to Dick's Sporting Goods or we could go to Cabela's and we could just buy some arrows, right? But not in Solomon's day. Arrows had to be shaped and arrows had to be sharpened. If you're going to talk about arrows, those things have to be shaped and sharpened. He didn't go down to the sporting goods store to buy them, and he didn't find them laying around on the ground. Uh, Sticks are not that sharp by nature, right? Flint is not that sharp by nature. They have to be carefully shaped and sharpened. Children are exactly the same way. And then arrows have to be aimed and released. I'm finding this part more difficult now that I have late teen children. The release part is the difficult part. And I've said this before, and it's true, and, I'm, and I say it partly because I'm still in the mode of self-discovery. I am the more sentimental parent. I am the, my daughter's laughing in the doorway. Go away. <laughs> I really am. Ethan's gone this summer. You, many of you know he's 10 weeks at Camp Bighorn doing summer staff, and I mope around the house. I miss my kid, right? And Jen's like, get over yourself. Let's go. And uh, she's excited to be an empty nester at some point. And I'm like, no, my babies, right? And, and so it's just the release part. Arrows that are left in the quiver or which are shot haphazardly in some direction, uh, th- those are not much good. They're not very effective. In fact, they, they can be the cause of great harm if they're not aimed carefully, right? This implies skill and direction. So the archer must know, parents, um, what is the target and have sufficient skill to fire those arrows towards the target. The point of rearing children is not to keep them for ourselves. Now I'm preaching to me. Many parents lose their kids because they're trying so desperately to hang on to them. Our goal is to aim them at the target, which is Satan's kingdom. We go after him and then we release them as burning arrows for Jesus. We send them out. What would happen? What would happen if we, as a church culture, begin to see our children that way? Think about what that would do to the church. If we begin to see our kids, these precious lives that God has entrusted to us, like that. There'd be balanced child rearing, not helicopter parents, right? Oh, man. Yeah, stories from campus ministry days of kids leaving an exam. First thing to do on the phone. Mom, I made a D. I'm like, what are you doing calling your mom? 
you're at college, right? And then the parents like calling the professor. When I was a lifeguard instructor, I had kids that washed out of the prerequisite test. They couldn't swim the minimum requirement just to get in the class to become a lifeguard. And parents coming to me after the next day threatening to sue me and the city that I work for because their kids had failed out of a test. I'm like, what, what is what? I don't even understand. That's crazy, right? This is, so, so we see our kids as arrows to be shaped and sharpened and then released. That, that, would, that would eliminate that kind of parenting. Also would eliminate the neglectful parenting. It's like, well, they'll figure it out. Right? No, no, no. Your job, God gave you the job of stewarding, discipling, and training your children in righteousness. Right? So balance and discipleship, nurturing, and, and just as an aside, you need to instill in your kids from an early age a burden for world missions. Can, could I just encourage you? Parents, do that. Future parents, do that. Uh, or at the very least, instill in them the value of being yielded to the will of God as a future adult. Right? The, the, there's cost there. There's cost involved. Because they may leave you and go to some far corner of the world to serve Jesus. And you may not get to be involved in your grandkids' lives as they grow up. You may be separated from your kids. But you will be walking in paths of righteousness for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so here's the vision for us, the vision piece as we move to closure. Godly men, because they are the linchpin of the family unit, will yield strong families, which result in healthier churches, which impact the culture and the society. And so here's, what, here's our part in this as a Mass Road, as a church. On Tuesday nights, we alternate Mosaic, which is uh, the, the women's ministry making our souls alive in Christ. And they gather Tuesday night. And then the next Tuesday night, we do Fight Club, which is for the men. And, and we've chosen to start Fight Club. We just wrapped up a five DVD series on sexual purity. And the reason that we chose as a church plan to take 18 weeks to watch five DVDs on sexual purity is because that issue has got the men in the church locked down in, in failure and in sin and in bondage, and they're ineffective. We can't pray. We can't evangelize. We can't do any of the things that we need to do in leading our families if we're, if we're in bondage to that sin. And so we've chosen to engage there first and to invite the enemy to come right at us head first, right in the first inception of our church. And it's been amazing. And it's been really hard. Right? Because we see that that's the linchpin. Creating multi-generational environments. Right? My teenage sons are in the room at Fight Club. Because they don't need to be around their peers all the time. We don't, we don't take our cues as a church from the, from the education system and say, you know, what we need to do is isolate 13-year-olds. Let's put 30 of them in a room together because that's healthy. <laughs> right? I'm going to throw an adult in there. That'll be fine. He, that person can supervise the chaos. Right? That's, that's not how they learn. They need to see us living out the gospel in our lives Parents, adults, right? Um, so w- one of the things we do is we started working in every week. The clipboards, there's some discussion questions for the kids to ask the parents. And we encourage them to do so, right? Ask your parents these questions. Have these discussions. Here are the ones this week. You ready for this? I'm doing this as a heads up to you parents because I don't... Well, I was going to say, I don't want you to be blindsided later today, but I kind of like, that'd be kind of fun. I'd like to be the fly on the wall, but I'm going to just give you a heads up. Here are the questions this week. What does God mean when he says that a thing is in vain? Are you ready to explain to your kid what that means from God's perspective? Uh, Here's the next one. Do you, and so one parent, do you 
and then mom and or dad or just you, do you have a plan to disciple me and, and help me become a godly grown-up someday? And then if not, can we talk to Pastor Mike about starting one? And then here's the last one. Um, here's a kid asking the question to you, the parents. As my parent or parents, what can you see me doing in the future with my gifts and strengths and interests that would be pleasing to Jesus? How can I start developing those things now? So, so I'm, I'm asking your kids to begin to think about these things, and I'm asking you to think about these things if you haven't, because this is part of the stewardship of family. This is part of what God's entrusted to us as family. Uh, as individuals, uh, a father with a quiver full of straight, sharp arrows, ready to send that right into the heart of the enemy, will not be ashamed when he has to contend with his enemies. Right, The city gate was a place where Hebrew men gathered to conduct business and to carry out justice. And the idea here is that the man with an exemplary children will not be ridiculed by his opponents because his children are a living testimony of his uprightness and integrity as a man. Right, Parents, are you raising your children in a way that honors Jesus and his ways? Uh, because the most important disciples that you will ever make in the church are the ones that God already put into your home. He sent them there. The stork brought them to you, right? These are the most important disciples. Are you inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the kingdom? One thing we do at our house, we do second Saturday every month. Second Saturday at Saturdays, we have our kids invite at least five to, I say five to seven. It usually ends up 10 per kid. We usually have about 30 teenagers in our house um, on second Saturday and the, and the chestnuts come and we just kind of manage the chaos and we play games and we give them lots of caffeine and sugar and it goes really well. And, and it's completely inconvenient. Can I just tell you like by, by the, because they're usually there for what, three hours. And by hour number two, I'm ready to kind of find a hole somewhere and crawl into it and just escape. Right. But, but here's the, what would the, the, the promise we've made to our kids and the, the value that we've embraced as a family is that I want to be, I want our house to be the house where our kids' friends want to hang out because I want to have influence over my kids' friends because as, I, as my direct authority over my kids wanes, I want my influence to go up. And one of the ways it happens is through their friends, right? So uh, parents of teenagers, let me just really quickly, two categories, two columns. One is authority, one is influence. When your kids are small, it's all authority. You don't need to worry about influence, right? And they're two and you say, don't touch that thing. You don't need to explain why, right? It's just authority. You do it because I told you so, right? And then as a teenager... The influence category is coming up. The, the, the direct authority is kind of moving down. Young adults, you know, late teens, young adults. Oh, man, you ever tried to drive a stick shift and find that place where you're letting out on the clutch, letting in on the gas, and you're not stalling the car? It's like this at 17, trying to figure out how to parent, right? Less authority, more influence, and then for the rest of your life, the authority is going down, the influence is hopefully going up. What I see in a lot of homes, even in the church, is that both categories, the influence never comes up, and the authority just goes down. And, and the, even though the parent's still trying to act as an authority when the kid's 21, 22, 23, it doesn't work. You've got to be intentional about letting one down, letting the other up, right? And so... Do your kids' friends want to hang out at your house? Or have you sent the unintended message that you don't want to be inconvenienced? Right? Single, single people in the room, who are you discipling? You're not off the hook. Don't think, some of you guys are single, you're like, whew, great sermon, wasn't for me. Single people, who are you discipling? 
Who are you pouring into? Who are you investing your life into? What is your plan to grow to the place of maturity if you're not discipling someone, but to get to the place where you could? What's your plan? Are you called to be single? Terrific. Do that to the glory of God. Are you called to get married? Great. Begin to prepare yourself now. You cannot start too early. Think about how does my heart move to the place of being ready to engage with a spouse, right? For all of us, it's not too late. Discipleship is spiritual parenting. Even empty nesters in the room, and I'm praying for more of those. We get some gray hair in our church. We need some gray hair, right? Um, they, they can pour their lives into the younger people all around them. That's everybody, right? That's everybody. If you're old, that's everybody who's younger than you. So just pour your life out. Young adults, future parents, young marrieds, let the Lord build your house. Let the Lord be the one to, don't do it in vain. Let the Lord build your house. Every adult, married or single, join the Lord in building his house. That's the point of the psalm. He's called us to cooperate with him in the work of the kingdom. And the work of the kingdom starts at home. Starts at home. That's the foundation. Father, would you give us wisdom to carry that out? Some great takeaways today. And we just say, oh, that was a clever little uh, quip. I'm just going to remember that. But Lord, let it go beyond those things to the place where you would be redirecting and revolutionizing our lives and helping us to embrace your design for family as your people. Lord, we recognize that ultimately that's about impact, uh, not just in our community here in Stanwood and in the north end of Snohomish County, but it's about impacting the whole world. And we want to be found faithful before you, Lord. So we ask you to do these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.